It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. EU Confidential will begin in just a moment after a message from this week's sponsor. Government relies on innovation. Innovation relies on us. 5G enables big ideas, and we enable 5G. It starts with Qualcomm. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, news editor at Political Europe, standing in one more time for Ryan Heath, who's on honeymoon. Everyone here sends their congratulations to him and to Zachary, or as the audio version of our playbook column put it, Champagne bottle, champagne bottle, champagne bottle. This week on the podcast, we take in some mountain air, not the air of Salzburg, which EU leaders probably don't want to sample again for a very long time, but the country air of a couple of political gatherings of recent weeks, one in Austria and one in Slovenia. In Slovenia, we hear from the Foreign Minister of Montenegro, Sergej Darmanovic. If Montenegro is ringing a few distant bells, this could be why. Montenegro is a tiny country with very strong people. Yeah, I'm not against Montenegro or Albania. No, by the way, they're very strong people. They're very aggressive people. They may get aggressive and... Congratulations, you're in World War III. We ask the minister about those comments. Darmanovic also tells us what he thinks about the talk of a land swap between Kosovo and Serbia and about relations with Russia these days, two years after the government accused Moscow of trying to stage a coup. In Austria, we hear from the head of the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe, Thomas Gremminger. He also has some things to say about the Balkans and about Ukraine where his organisation is heavily involved in efforts to keep the conflict there under control. And our regular podcast panellists, Lida Abarus and Alva Finn, are back from the wedding celebrations this week. Among the subjects they tackle, the European Court of Justice ruling that members of the European Parliament don't have to account for €100 million worth of expenses every year. Will anyone dare to defend that? That's all coming up this week in EU Confidential. So first, let's hear from Montenegro's Foreign Minister, Serjan Darmanovic. He spoke to our Chief Europe Correspondent, Matt Karnichnik, so I called up Matt in our Berlin Bureau to set the scene for the interview. Matt, you spoke to Montenegro's Foreign Minister Serjan Darmanovic recently and we're going to hear what he has to say about a land swap between Kosovo and Serbia, or the possibility of that anyway, Russia's role in the Balkans and Donald Trump's comments about his country. But first, just set the scene for us. You were at an event together. What was the event and where did the interview take place? 
Yeah, the event is called the Bled Strategic Forum, which is a conference that takes place every year in the mountains of Slovenia. It's a very picturesque place on a lake overlooking the Triglav, which is the highest peak in Slovenia. And Damanovic and I met on the fringes of that conference in a very large conference room in one of the many hotels there. He took some time off to have a chat with us. Okay. So let's start with the big news from the Balkans in recent months, the possibility of a land swap, some kind of border change involving Kosovo and Serbia. And let's hear what the minister had to say about that. They can agree on what they want. If it is successful, fine. But uh, I just want to say that it is a double-edged solution. It will be very fruitful and successful if stays bilateral issue. If two sides agree, find the solution, they are happy, and that's it. But we should never forget that in the Balkans, to paraphrase Winston Churchill, we produce more history and politics than we can swallow. And uh, if this case will be taken as a precedent for other national or nationalistic ambitions, frustrations, territorial claim in the region, then it will be a problem. Swap of the territories might prove to be quite successful and might help to the region, but uh, we should always think about other scenario. And other scenario can always be very complicated. Ethnic nationalism is uh, very attractive in the Western Balkans. And as you can see today, even in the very prosperous Europe, we are just trying to explain to our friends from the EU, from the United States, to our friends from Serbia and Kosovo, that we have to be open-minded, we have to have open eyes, and to analyze all possible consequences, for better or for worse. So he's being pretty diplomatic there, Matt, saying it's up to Kosovo and Serbia to figure this out. But he's also expressing reservations about the possible impact on the region. What's he most worried about there, do you think? Well, my suspicion is that he's worried about some kind of instability being triggered by this. In particular, anything that could harm Montenegro's chances of remaining on track to join the EU at some stage. And that is really the great prize, not just for Montenegro, but for other countries in the region. So the last thing that they really want now is some kind of event to happen that could make the EU and others worry about how stable the broader region is. And I think that in particular, on in terms of the land swap, it seems that they are worried about something like, you know, what people in the region refer to as Greater Albania, the idea that Kosovo could end up unifying with Albania in some way, which could you know, trigger instability in places like Macedonia, which has its own Albanian population. Another worry, obviously, is Bosnia, which remains very divided along ethnic lines. You know, there's this constant sort of background din there with the Republic of uh, Srpska, with the leadership there uh, sort of threatening to join Serbia at some point. And, and so y- you have these tensions that are already there. And I think that the fear is that a land swap like this could trigger broader problems. Right. Let's move to another topic, one that put Montenegro in the news a couple of years back, and that's Russia. 
can you just remind us why Russia's role in Montenegro suddenly became a big global story? Well, the suspicion is, and it seems to be backed up by some fairly convincing evidence, is that Russia sponsored a coup attempt in Montenegro a couple of years ago, just as the country was getting ready to join NATO. And that was really a wake-up call, I think, for not just people in the region, but also for the U.S. and for Europe, that they needed to start paying more attention again to what was happening in the Balkans. And they managed to bring the situation under control and arrested at least some of the people who were responsible for it. But the involvement of Russia and Russians in Montenegro remains a concern for them. There are a lot of wealthy Russians own property there, for example, and it sounds like the Russian tourists are continuing to visit Montenegro's coast and so forth. But it is an issue for them, and I think that that's why the NATO membership in particular has been so important for the government. Right. Let's hear what uh, Darmanovich had to say about that when he was talking to you um, concerning relations with Russia. To some extent, our relations with Russia entered in the more calm waters. At least there is no harsh rhetoric anymore. President Putin sent the congratulations note after our presidential elections. The economic relations has always been dynamic. In the two last summer seasons, we had the enormous wave of Russian tourists to our coast. I would say Montenegro is not any more specific target, but uh, we should not neglect Russian very clear interests, interests and influence in our region. In our region, Russia is playing the role of a definite competitor of the EU in different ways, and there are strategic orientation to take NATO as a competitor and maybe in some situations an enemy is something that is not related with Montenegro. It's related with the fight for the global power. Russia is uh, acting as a revisionist power and it is something we just need to recognize. We simply need to be aware that there is a global competition for, for power and Montenegro might find itself inside this story in our region. So we need to stay vigilant, but to find a way to make our relations better. We have never enjoyed this clash with Russia. We have never wanted to have any clash because our NATO membership is not against anybody. Now, and finally, proving the point that one small country can attract a lot of global attention, uh, Donald Trump has also taken an interest of sorts in Montenegro. Uh, let's hear what Foreign Minister Darmanovich had to say when you asked him about that. I think it was not a statement given specifically on Montenegro as a country. Montenegro was picked up as an example. Any other example could have been picked up. It was a story on Article 5 and collective security related with the financial contributions for the common defense. What President Trump was speaking openly about in the NATO summit. So I think it was uh, part of that story. And I don't believe it was any kind of politics of sphere of influence that was allegedly discussed with, with President Putin. I'm quite sure that United States, as well as NATO, sticks very firmly to the Article 5. 
and that it is still rock solid inside NATO. I very much favor European soft power, but sometimes the hard power of the United States is replaceable, as the crisis of the 90s very clearly demonstrated. So he's basically saying it's nothing to worry about. The US is committed to NATO's mutual defence clause. But Matt, is he right? Is NATO and the US, are they going to come to Montenegro's rescue if there's another clash, you know, with Russia, for example? I think he is right. I think that the US would step in there and I think that Europe would step in there and and, uh, meet its obligations. And I think that, you know, Trump was just sort of using Montenegro as an example of the kind of challenges that NATO would face in this kind of a situation. On the other hand, you know, the tensions between the the U.S. and some of the NATO partners remain in terms of burden sharing and the rest. And if you look at, you know, sort of recent headlines and what's happened in the transatlantic relationship, it's clear that those tensions remain. Uh, Just this week, the standoff at the U.N. over Iran, for example, was another reflection of that with the EU basically standing up and saying that they were going to pursue their own course on Iran against the express wishes of the U.S. So, you know, I I expect, you know, these doubts will remain for as long as Trump is president, at least. That was Matt Karnichnik talking about his interview with Montenegro's foreign minister, Serjan Darmanovic. Coming later, the podcast panel. But first, let's hear Ryan Heath talking to Thomas Greminger, Secretary-General of the OSCE at the Altbach Forum Europe in Austria. Joining me now on the podcast is Thomas Greminger, who is the Secretary-General of the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Hi. Now, for those of the people listening who don't have a full knowledge of all the different organizations operating across Europe, could you tell us a little bit about OSCE and how it's different from the European Union or NATO or the Council of Europe, some of those organizations that a lot of people have heard of or they deal with on a more daily basis? The OSCE is the largest regional security organization. It is an inclusive platform for dialogue where 57 participating states sit at the table, including the US, Canada, Europe, Russia, uh, all the former states of the ex-Soviet Union, that is Central Asia. Its mandate focuses on conflict prevention, conflict management. We deal, uh, for instance, with the crisis in and around Ukraine. We would then also offer a capacity-building platform for exchanging on best practices in tackling what we call transnational threats, that is basically preventing violent extremism and radicalization that lead to terrorism, cyber threats, all kinds of trafficking, uh, trafficking human beings in in drugs, in arms. And now, if we think a bit about your peacekeeping operation in Ukraine, in the Donbass region, how is that going? I mean, you obviously have an uphill battle there because you're 
a much smaller minor player and there are a lot of unseen forces where you can't necessarily know who and what is organizing against peace in that area. So how is that going and what other support do you think you could do with Well, let me start with the good news. And the good news is that the special monitoring mission to Ukraine, but also the trilateral contact group that is moderated by the OEC, these two tools, they manage quite well to contain the conflict, to prevent further escalation, to make sure that things do not spin out of control. And I think in that sense, the special monitoring mission does an amazing job on a daily basis by intervening, by arranging for windows of silence that would, on the one hand, allow repairs, humanitarian repairs of electricity, gas, water uh, infrastructure. And on the other hand, equally important, making sure that local ceasefire violations do not spin out of control. The trilateral contact group meeting every second week in Minsk is discussing security, humanitarian, socioeconomic issues related to the conflict and its impact to the populations on both sides of the line of contact, and is again and again capable of recommitting the sides to a ceasefire, which then again, the pattern is you will have much lower ceasefire violation figures for quite a while, and then things go up again. And why is this so? Well, because there is not enough political will by the sides to really also tackle the structural reasons of why we have uh, then these hikes in ceasefire violations after a few weeks. As long as we you know, are not capable of imposing a withdrawal of the heavy weaponry, as long as we are not seriously starting with disengaging, you will always have uh, these patterns. So here, I think we need much more political commitment to also address these structural issues. And then, of course, the same is basically valid for the political provisions of the Minsk agreements. And at the end of the day, you will only come to a sustainable solution of the conflict once you have implementation of both sets, the security-related and the the political clauses of Minsk. Mm And it was interesting that you mentioned also going into the socioeconomic field. I mean, this might sound a little bit off the core issues, but I was reading, in fact, that there's been more than 20,000 cases of measles reported in Ukraine just in 2018. And that strikes me as one of the unforeseen consequences of being stuck in a conflict zone and not necessarily having access to the systems that you used to have and people really just being in a day-to-day struggle for survival. Can your work extend into addressing those sort problems or that's one step too far and that has to be left to the local authorities yeah you're absolutely right i mean i was just in the donbass a month ago and i mean i i i I, uh, saw the suffering uh, of the people there has been uh, progress no doubt about it but the margin of maneuver of these working groups is quite limited because there is this deep distrust by the sides there is a lot of politicization of also very humanitarian issues. There has been a struggle on the width of a, of a bridge at Staniska, Luganska, you know, that would allow the crossing of ambulances. For months there has been now uh, haggling about how many centimeters more you would need. <laughs> and it's incredibly, uh, you know, I find cynical how the sides then deal with these humanitarian concerns. 
Now, maybe if we switch geographies to the Balkan region, we're here at the Altback Forum in Austria, and there's a very interesting debate last night between several of the presidents in the region. And we've seen some great progress in the dispute between Greece and Macedonia, or what diplomatic community members would call FIROM, the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. And it looks like we're close to coming to a resolution to that dispute and something that's been a very tense issue might allow some very practical benefits to the people of both countries. And then we've seen in recent days the prospect that Serbia and Kosovo might be willing to renegotiate their borders to help come to some lasting settlement there. Does OSCE have a view on that or what do you think could be done to, to make sure there is a bright future in the region? Well, uh, generally, uh, let me also, uh, I mean, say that, yes, it's good that there is not only doom and gloom, uh, right? There are positive uh, developments, and I think they need to be seized and they need to be supported in, in that sense. How important is it for the countries in that region that they've got a real tangible prospect of joining the EU? You know, some are literally in negotiations. Obviously, the long-term goal for all the countries is to be in the EU. But I think some of them find it quite frustrating to be stuck in this holding pattern where they're not really wanted by the voters of the European Union. They haven't quite done all of the reforms and the cultural changes they needed. And so they're kind of a couple of steps forward, a step backward, and it's a very long process. Well, I see, of course, the dilemma that the EU is in. And I think it's a genuine dilemma not only triggered by current skepticism in some constituencies within the EU. I think on the one hand, it's very important that there is a clear perspective for the states of the Western Balkans. But at the same time, I think it's also very important that there are clear standards that need to be met before you can join. And if here the EU is too lenient, I think there will be a pushback later on. It's often harder to address those issues once someone has been brought in from the cold. It's a lot easier when they're standing outside and feeling cold to prompt them to make changes. I guess the recent history of the EU uh, proves that point uh, very well. Absolutely. No, and, and in that sense, uh, I see, of course, you know, the impatience of some of the states in the Western Balkans. But at the same time, I think it's important that they do their homework and that the EU remains principled. But I think at the end of the day, what is key is that there is a clear perspective, a, a commitment. We want you to be part of our club once uh, you have done your, accomplished your homework. Thomas Gremminger, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Uh, You're most welcome. Thank you. That was Ryan Heath talking to Thomas Gremminger of the OSCE. And the podcast panel is coming next after this short message. Your job isn't to navigate through irrelevant policy data to get relevant policy knowledge. That's our job. This week, we launch Politico Pro Intelligence, a brand new platform which fuses the power of technology with the power of journalism. It allows you to seamlessly search, track, and understand all stages of the legislation you care about in one place. We deliver the insight you need so you can save time for your real job, making decisions. Email pro at politico.eu to find out what Politico Pro Intelligence can do for you. So now it's time for our podcast panel and we welcome back Lena Abarus. Hi Lena. Hi Andrew. 
and welcome back Alba Finn. Hi Alba. Hi guys, good morning. Morning, so you were both at Ryan's wedding, uh, had a wonderful time. Big question, did you bring back any cake? No, it's ice cream, like kind of an ice cream cake, so it wouldn't have lasted very long, but it was a beautiful wedding and I think big congrats to Ryan. Absolutely, and and a nice holiday as well, right? Absolutely. Lots of emotions and lots of love was uh, all over the place, so big congratulations to Ryan and Zach. Great. Okay, so we'll get on to the topics on the agenda this week, and I thought we would start. This feels like it has to be an EU WTF unless anyone can make sense of it. The European Court of Justice ruling that members of the European Parliament do not have to disclose how they spend their expenses allowance, which totals up to about €100 million annually. They use the right of privacy as their justification for this. Alva, do you have any sympathy with that argument? I think that I would have sympathy for the fact that if they haven't been required to collect documentation around their use, that they shouldn't be now expected to. And I assume there's some sort of regulation or rule about this. Now, if obviously they are complying with rules and regulations, that's their procedural right. I don't really understand this um, reasoning that it's their private life. It is not their private life. It's their public life and it's public money. So what I would hope that in the future is that probably the next parliament could take this forward is that they all need to report on what they're using the money for. And all of this stuff about it being really bureaucratic and adding another layer of bureaucracy, well, I don't really care about that. We know, and have talked about this on the podcast numerous times, about how MEPs misuse that money. Lena, what do you think? I mean, sometimes I'm trying to sort of do devil's advocate and I'm wondering, is this a kind of northern, northwest European obsession, transparency that other parts of Europe and other parts of the world don't get? I mean, are we, are we wrong to expect that public money should be publicly accounted for? Definitely it should be accounted for and the irony is that the MEPs when they do delegations and they go on missions and they visit other uh, third countries they talk about transparency and corruption and they preach and uh, they try to to see indexes of other parts of the world yet again they don't apply it on themselves. Something whether it's north or south I think most of the regulations in the European Parliament are inspired by national regulations. So we need as well to examine in other parts of Europe how the Parliament works. Are the MPs obliged to declare their private expenses, which are not at all private expenses? You will not need 4,000 and a bit of euros to buy pencils and papers and stuff like that. We have a new elections next year, we have a new Parliament, and I think it's a good opportunity to come up with a new regulations to enhance more transparency and let them lead by example. I was thinking as well, if any MEP wants to come on and defend why this system is okay, I would be really interested to hear their arguments because it just does sound to outside ears. I think a lot of people are going to find this kind of incomprehensible. So maybe we'll have someone on next week. Let's move on to the media. Alva, um, you wanted to nominate something regarding an attempt to crack down on fake news. Yes, so... Recently, the Digital Commissioner has come out and announced that there is a voluntary code of practice, which, as you just said, is basically going to target fake news. But what they're not calling it fake news, they're calling it disinformation. Mm -hmm. And according to the Commission, Facebook, Google, Twitter, Mozilla, and some other trade associations that work in the digital space. Basically, it's a voluntary code of practice, which I always think is like 
God, you might as well throw that in the bin. It doesn't really have any teeth, but what it, they have agreed to do is disrupt advertising revenues of certain accounts and websites that spread disinformation or fake news, making political advertising or issue-based advertising more transparent, addressing things like fake accounts and bots, and empowering consumers to report disinformation. The one thing that they don't or is like explicitly excluded is misleading advertising. And I assume that that's why all of these companies have agreed to sign up to this because they get revenue from advertising. And even from my own experience in Ireland, when we had the abortion referendum, you know, a lot of that was done through advertising. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see where the line is between political advertising and just misleading advertising. But to me, it just seems very weak Mm. and there's no teeth to this. I wonder what you guys think about this new code of practice. Lena, what do you think? I mean, you work in the public affairs sphere. You know, again, there are voluntary codes of practices there too. Are they, are they worthwhile? Can they be worthwhile? Voluntary bases are never worthwhile. Actually, it's a very good PR tool to uh, to position yourself <laughs> as like, oh, hey, listen, I'm doing good and, and uh, I'm abiding. But when I want, I can pull out. When it's not uh, suiting me, I can just uh, simply uh, do something else. The interesting part is that there are no KPIs, there are no measures, there are no action plans. So it's a great, as usual, we have a big public press conference and a statement and we have it in the media. But yet again, the European citizen has no clue on how am I going to measure this success. And if next year they come and they say, okay, we have reduced this by this amount or by this percentage, but based on what? So no, it doesn't work. It has to be something obligatory. It has to be like we sign code of conduct, like we sign even the transparency register still, it's a voluntary practice in in Brussels. So I don't see it as a really going to be an effective tool given as well it's a very short period for this commission so we don't know the next commission how we will they will deal with that mm. i mean i think also the problem is when people talk about disinformation it's one of these things everyone seems to be able to agree we should crack down on fake news but everyone has a different definition of what it is i mean donald trump uses the phrase a lot fake news but originally really came to kind of prominence to describe a lot of the stuff that was getting put out there around the US presidential election, including in favour of his candidacy, which was false. So, you know, the trouble is, uh, is you know, how do you then, you know, definitions are always uh, difficult, yep. I think. And I suppose the whole thing is that they're trying to do this in view of the fact that we already know that there is going to be disinformation campaigns led by potentially Russia and others in the run-up to the next European elections, which is coming up in May. So I just wonder if they've kind of not, I mean, this is a first step, but is this really going to be useful when we know that there are literally thousands of bots Mm. creating this kind of content and that also there will be paid for misadvertising around the elections as well. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know. And, And there's a lot of technicalities. I mean, to put down content from online, how long does it take? Is it going to be like instantly to how many people it would reach first before it is tackled? What are the reporting systems? What could be, yes, something really bad and it's a disinformation. So there is a lot of ambiguity around it. Yeah, sounds like it. And finally, I thought we would just take a look at it. Um, happened just after we recorded last week's podcast. Things came to a head in Salzburg, the EU summit. And uh, I happened to be back in London last weekend. And it's just really striking how differently the summit is viewed on different sides of the channel. And um, you guys are travelling elsewhere in Europe, of course, during that time. I mean, how did you perceive the Salzburg summit and what can we learn from it, if anything? 
I think that Theresa May should take people at their word. I mean, everybody has told Britain, not just Theresa May, also uh, David Cameron when he was doing the rounds trying to negotiate. There is an indivisibility on the four freedoms. It was one of the reasons why that went so badly, the negotiations that David Cameron had with other EU leaders. I don't understand how many more times they need to hear that. Checkers is in its current form is not going to happen. Stop trying to make it happen and stop trying to, yeah, divide the four freedoms. It's just they are in solidarity around it. So I don't understand how many times she needs to be told that. Lena, what do you think? It was yet another opportunity to see that definitely there's no deal by the timeline they have put. We don't see light at the end of this tunnel. It's very visible to all the European citizens and Basically, when they say Brexit means a Brexit, there is no in, there is no out, there is no room to, to that much to negotiate. So it's part now Mrs. May should come and say, OK, I have a plan. And they, I think they need to be a little bit more coming to the EU rather than the EU. is. They're mm. standing all united in, in they're leaving. I mean, they're divorcing the UK. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. not going to be yeah. an easy divorce yeah. at all. OK, we'll leave it there. Lena, Alva, thanks very much for coming in. And that's it for another EU Confidential. Thanks to Ryan for keeping us supplied with interviews while he's been away, and congratulations again to him. Thanks also to Weidong Lin for producing the programme, and if you have a chance to rate or review the podcast on your usual podcast platform, we'd very much appreciate it. And Ryan will be back next week with another EU Confidential. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.